mouthful, a lot going on. Um, next week's going to be crazy, but uh, hopefully you guys can, can take advantage of uh, some of those things that we've got going. So, Galatians chapter 3. Continuing to study through the book of Galatians, Paul's letter to these churches of Galatia. We're going to look at verses 10 through 25 of Galatians chapter 3 this morning. And as we know, Paul wrote this letter because these false teachers known as Judaizers, which is just sort of a fancy word for legalistic people that were trying to put these new believers under the bondage of the law once again. They had invaded like an enemy army. They had come into this church, this naive church. It seems like false teachers always want to prey upon naive, new, fledgling believers. Very rarely do they lead people who have no concept of God to the Lord. They don't lead unbelievers to anything. And mature believers know better. So what do they do? They prey on new believers. They prey on naive, immature believers who don't have a solid foundation in the Word. And that's exactly what they did here. They moved in on these new believers, this little church in churches that Paul had planted. And he left them to go and plant more. And they moved in behind Paul. And they attempted, and quite successfully, put these people back under the law. Saying that the way to relate to God is not by faith, it's not by grace. It's not by Jesus. It's not through the cross. It's by your own efforts. It's by the law. And that really is what the book of Galatians is all about, is how do we relate to God? Do we relate to God by faith or by works? And many, including these false teachers, would say the way to relate to God is by your own works, by what you can do for God. And how often have you heard that? Or at least that's your perception, that's the concept, that's what we as pastors and leaders have given you the impression that it is about what you can do for God. And it's all these lists of right and wrong and do's and don'ts, and that's what's been propagated, that's what's been put out there for you to buy into. Not probably, not purposely, Oh, if you ask somebody, they'll say, yeah, it is Jesus, it is the cross. But what's said, what's perceived, what is the impression given is it's about you. Well, that's the subtle false teaching that is given today. But this was not subtle. This wasn't covert at all. This was in your face. False teaching. Forget Jesus. Forget the cross. It's by the law. It's your good works. That's how you relate to God. And Galatians is all about that. How do you relate to God? Is it by faith or is it by works? And here in our text, Paul is going to debunk these false teachers by revealing three truths. Three truths that really ultimately point us to Jesus. Three truths that not only had application for them, but have application for us. 
And the first truth is that the penalty of the law was paid by Jesus. There was a penalty. Here it's called the curse of the law. There was a penalty to be paid. And it was paid by Jesus. A second truth is that the promise of Jesus preceded the law. We're going to talk about that and it'll make sense. And then thirdly, the purpose of the law was to point us to Jesus. Three truths. And Paul, like a master lawyer, basically puts these false teachers on trial. And he just shreds them up in this text. He, he makes their doctrine so foolish. But the funny thing is, is that when we're stubborn and when we're not listening to God and when we're not hearing from Him, it doesn't matter what kind of proof is put before us. We don't change. And it's sad. And I would ask and pray that you have and allow God to make your heart soft and pliable and changeable. Don't be like these false teachers who, even when presented with the facts, wouldn't change. Even when shown that they were wrong, refused. How sad that is. You know, there's a couple different types of pride. And one of them can be broken. And another type of pride, it looks like it's being changed. It responds to the work sort of like a sponge it moves, but then it just comes right back to where it was before. And that's a worse type of pride. A type of pride that can't be broken. The rock-solid pride, the hammer of God's Word hits it and, it and it breaks up. But that sponge rubber pride, it just sort of, like Gumby, it just kind of responds, but then when you walk away after being shown the facts, they just go right back the way they were. Sad. And so let's talk about the penalty. Verses 10 through 14. The penalty of the law was paid by Jesus. He says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, or let's call it the penalty. They're under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Here's the problem, trying to relate to God by the law. You have to complete it perfectly. You have to fulfill it 100%. There isn't any of this, well, I'm a pretty good person. Well, my good works outweigh my bad works, which I would really challenge us and challenge people to wonder, is that even true? Do your good works really outweigh your bad works? You may think they do. You may have deceived yourself into thinking they do. But let's like go back and watch a video of our life. Remember that Robin Williams movie? It was kind of a trippy, creepy movie where you could watch your life, you know, after you died. People would watch it and then they would edit out all the bad stuff you did. You know, it doesn't quite work that way. And if we're going to try to relate to God... By our own goodness, here's the thing. You better be perfect. And people will say that. They'll say, well, my good works outweigh my bad works. Okay, well, let's just assume that that's true. 
Here's the problem. If you tell one lie, what does that make you? A liar, right? If you steal something once, makes you a thief. If you sin, it makes you a sinner. We don't like that term. It's not really politically correct anymore. People don't like to be called things. They don't like to be labeled. Hey, I'm not a sinner. That's other people. That's the people that are in prison. That's the rapists and the murderers. That's Saddam Hussein. You know, some people might say that's the current administration, you know, in our government. They're the sinners. We're just people trying to do good. Well, you know, that's a nice thought, but it's not accurate. If you've sinned once, you're a sinner. And when you've broken the law, you're a lawbreaker. And from that point on, you cannot relate to God by the law. So it's like, you know, when you were two years old and you hit that kid over the top of the head with the toy because he wouldn't share. It was over at that point. It's like you're a lawbreaker. And you need to relate to God in a different way. And so Jesus came. And He fulfilled the law. He was perfect. That's the point of verse 10. If you want to keep the law, well, you can try. But it's an effort in futility. In verse 11, But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. It's, it's clearly demonstrated. That no one can be declared righteous. That's what justification is. No one can be declared righteous by the law. And it's like Paul was dumbfounded. He's thinking, why are we bringing up something that should be so clear? Something that's so obvious? Why are we even discussing this? Have you ever had discussions with people about things that, you know, like, is the sky blue, you know, type stuff? And you're thinking... It wouldn't matter if, you know, obviously it is the way it is and you don't see it. So why are we even bothering having this conversation? The, the facts are there and you don't see it. And that's kind of where Paul was at with these false teachers. Look, you guys, it should be evident that you cannot be justified by the law. We agreed on that at the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. Go back and look it up. He's saying to them, you cannot be justified by the law. It's evident. Because the just shall live by faith. If you want to be righteous, if you want to relate to God, you need to be righteous. And so if you want to relate to God and be justified in His sight, it won't be by the law, it'll be by faith. And this was a famous verse of the Reformation. It's actually a quote from Habakkuk. And Paul uses it three times, once here in Galatians, once in Romans. And then assuming Paul wrote Hebrews, he used it again in Hebrews. He uses this verse to say, look, the just, that is those that want to relate to God, that want to be righteous in His sight, the way that it will happen is by faith, purely. 
Yet the law is not a faith. So it just sort of eliminates that option. The law is not a faith. If you want to be justified, it will be by faith. And the law is not by faith. It's by works. You see, works and faith are mutually exclusive. Now, they do work together. James makes that clear. He says, you want to show me your faith without your works? I'll show you my faith by my works. But he makes it very clear that it's the demonstration. It's not what brings salvation. It's what demonstrates salvation. It's a byproduct. Works accompanies faith. It does not bring faith or award us salvation. The law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ, verse 13, has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And so here was the dilemma. If we are a lawbreaker, then we are subject to the penalty of the law. There was a righteous penalty that had to be paid. And it was hanging over us. Just like when you break the law, there's a penalty for it, right? And there's set penalties for different crimes. And there was this curse, this penalty hanging over us as lawbreakers. And so we would either have to endure that penalty and be subject to the wrath of God or Jesus would take it for us. And that's what He did. He became a curse. He took the curse. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that He became sin for us. He took our sin upon Himself. And see, it was considered a curse to be crucified. So He became a curse by being crucified. He took the curse by becoming a curse The method of execution of crucifixion was the worst form. In fact, it really didn't matter how you were executed. You would ultimately end up being hung out on the street for everyone to see. It was a way in which they would deter crime. So even if your head was lopped off or you were hung or you were stoned to death, typically they would drag you out, they would impale you, and they would let you hang out on the street for the birds to pick out your eyes and for people to look at you and and you would rot there for a few days. Now think if we did that today. That would probably deter crime a little bit. If after somebody got electrocuted, they drug them out on the street and hung them up for a few days, you know, you'd be like, wow, I don't want to do whatever he did, you know. And there was a low crime rate at that time, but it was considered a curse. It was considered... The worst form of death. And Jesus took that for us. He took the curse of the law upon Himself. That the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And so this was the result. Jesus took the curse that we might have the blessing. That we might have the promise of Abraham, which was what? Being justified by faith. We talked about it last week. 
Abraham did not relate to God by his works. Abraham related to God by faith. It says that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. He looked forward to the cross. We look backward to the cross. And we now, by Christ, enter into the promises of Abraham. And so the penalty of the law was paid by Jesus, made clear here. A second truth is found in verses 15 through 18, and that is the promise of Jesus preceded the law. This is important. The promise of the Messiah, the Savior, the one that would bring justification, the one in which they were awaiting, he preceded the law. Look at verse 15. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant. Yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Paul now brings up this covenant that was made back in Genesis 15. A covenant that Abraham saw with his own eyes. And God's saying, just like a covenant or a will or a promise or a contract, call it whatever you want to call it. Some people call it a testament. That's why we have the Old and New Testaments. That's what it means. It's an agreement. It's a contract. When you enter into a contract, you don't get to later decide, you know what? I'm going to add to that. Or I'm going to take away from it. Or I'm going to annul it or destroy it altogether. You don't get to do that. You've made a contract, just like a will. You make a will so that your siblings or that your children are not bickering and arguing and fighting over things after you die. You you want it to be clear where stuff is supposed to go. And nobody gets to just decide, you know, I know that this is what mom and dad wrote, but ah, let's let's change this. Let's let's do it our own way. That's why there's attorneys and, you know, it's taken very seriously. And so the promise was not to be added to or annulled. And this promise was made before the law. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say into seeds as of many, but as of one into your seed, who is Christ. See, this promise that was made was not given through many. It was given through one. And see, we have the wrong assumption that the promises of God were somehow laid down uh, through the Jewish people. And that that's how we relate to God. And and there's this wrong perception about that. That somehow the promises are to the Jews. The promises are to one, to the seed. And God has a plan and God has a purpose and God's going to do His work amongst the Jews once again. But His work of salvation, you guys, has nothing to do with the Jews. We all approach God by faith. The same way. And it was to the seed, singular, which speaks of Christ. 
You notice that it's capitalized. It speaks of Christ here. Jesus came through the line of Abraham. It was his seed. Plural. I mean, capitalized and singular, not plural. To his seed, the promises were made. Not to seeds as of many. Speaking of Christ. And this I say that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. The covenant, you guys, was given to Abraham. He was given this covenant, this agreement, back in Genesis 15, by faith. He was the recipient of it. But he was not a part of the covenant. Do you understand the difference? The covenant was made between God and himself. It's interesting because if you look back in Genesis 15, Abraham was given a promise. He was told he was going to have a son, a son of promise. And that through that son would come the blessings of God. Now, Abraham didn't quite understand what all of that meant. But what it meant was that the Messiah was going to come through the line of Abraham. Jesus was the fulfillment of these promises. And that's why it's also interesting to note that from a political standpoint, the land of Israel belongs to Israel. Absolutely. They've earned it. They've fought for it. But from a spiritual standpoint, it belongs to Jesus. It doesn't belong to any man. God gave it to Jesus. That was the promise given to Abraham that through his line, through his seed, these promises would be fulfilled. And one of those promises was the land of Israel. And that's why when he comes back to rule and to reign, he'll set up shop in Jerusalem. It's his land. really doesn't belong to any man. And people are fighting over it and, and, and calling it theirs. And, and believe me, from a political standpoint, it belongs to the Jews. And God has given them many great and precious promises. And He's prophesied that the Jewish people would come back into their land. But it has really nothing to do with who the land belongs to from a spiritual standpoint. From a spiritual standpoint, it's always belonged to God. And that's a complete aside. But the thing is, is that this covenant that was made that included all of these promises... This covenant was made between God and himself. Abraham just got to be the recipient. But he didn't really know that. And so he thought he was entering into this covenant that would be the normal way in which you would enter a covenant, which you would take a heifer and you would split it in half and then you would meet, the two parties would meet in the middle. And they would sign by blood whatever agreement, whatever covenant they were making. They would meet in the middle of this sacrificial heifer. And so Abraham got the heifer ready. He cut it in half and he's waiting on God to show up and they're going to sign this agreement. God's given him a promise, a covenant. And here it is. And what happened? Abraham waiting around quite a while. Birds start coming, eating, you know, he's shooing them away. Hey, get out of here. Pretty soon he gets sleepy, tired. 
He falls asleep. And it was in the midst of his sleep that God showed up and God made the covenant with himself. And Abraham woke up and the covenant was already made. See, Abraham just got to be the recipient of it. It wasn't made with him. And the same is true for us. The covenant of salvation that we've entered into, it's not like it's an agreement that we made with God. It's an agreement that Jesus and the Father made. As God the Father poured out His wrath upon Jesus, His death was the signature of this covenant. We get to just enter into it. We get to receive from it. But we have no obligation except to believe it and to receive it. Do you see the difference? Abraham thought it was about him, and when he woke up, he realized it had nothing to do with him. That God was signing this covenant. And so the promise, the promise of Jesus, the promise of the Savior, the promise of the One who could take the penalty of the law, it preceded the law, which is very important. Because 430 years before the law was even created, God had already signed His plan of salvation. And it had nothing to do with the law. Now these Judaizers are saying, if you want to be saved, it's according to the law. It'll be by the law. And Paul's saying, are you kidding? That's a joke. The law has nothing to do with salvation. It never has. And so today, if you're trying to relate to God by your own efforts, in a legalistic fashion, you're wasting your time. And how do you know if you're doing that? I'll tell you how you know. How you know that you're trying to approach God by your own works is why you do the things that you do for Him. See, you may not think that you're legalistic, but many of us are. And it's how we approach the things that we do on a daily basis, such as reading the Word, prayer, serving God, going to church, witnessing, using our gifts. If these things are done to try to gain favor with God, then you're approaching God by the law. You're approaching God in your own efforts in a legalistic fashion. And that's why so many of us are frustrated and grow weary and tired of things. Oh man, I, I haven't read the Word in two weeks. and Oh man, and so we're convicted and we're guilty and we're condemned. And, and so then we start reading the Bible and it's you know, getting up and you know, we're getting nothing out of it, but we're just reading the words. And we're thinking we're doing something that is making God happy. And we're trying to gain favor with God. Or prayer. And it's just, you know, I've got to pray, so I'm going to spend my ten minutes in prayer, and I'm going to give God this laundry list, and I'm going to say some things I think He wants to hear. You know, I'm going to serve the Lord, or I'm going to go to church. I've got, I don't really want to go. I'd rather watch football this morning, but, you know, I'm going to go because I've got to go because I want to go to heaven. And that's what's happening, is there's this legalistic kind of relationship forming with the Lord. And guess what it becomes? It becomes a drudgery. It becomes something that you have to do. It becomes a job. But if you flip that and you realize that it's already been done, you don't have to do anything. I don't. 
You don't have to read your Bible. You don't have to pray. You don't have to serve. You don't have to go to church. I don't. No. The Bible makes that very clear. But you'll want to because you get to. It's a privilege. It's a blessing. And when you have that perspective, when you have that mindset, you guys, the fruit of the Spirit just pours out of your life like Jesus said in John chapter 7. Like rivers of living water. It's natural. It's powerful. It's supernatural, in fact. Because you realize that you're not doing this to gain favor with God. You're doing this because you already have favor with God. You're not doing this because this is how you're going to relate to God. You're doing this because you have a relationship with Him. And you love Him. Because He first loved you. And so the Word of God, it's like that email that you've been waiting for. It's like that letter. It's like that book from your favorite author that you can't wait and you've seen it and it's pre-buy. You know, buy it now for $19.99. It's not coming out till July, but you know, you can buy it now and you can't wait. And you read it with ferociousness. You can't get enough. That's what the Word of God becomes when you realize that you don't have to get into this book to be accepted by God. You think God cares if you read the Word so that He can accept you? He sent His Son to be tortured and crucified so that you could be accepted, not so that you could read a book. He's given you this because He wants to talk to you. He wants to relate to you. He wants to speak to your heart. But you think reading this, reading information and just skimming through it is going to make you accepted by God? It's crazy. But that's the notion. That's what we give people the impression of. You guys, prayer and reading the Word and serving God and going to church, you know what? It becomes such an awesome privilege when we see it as what we get to do. And that's the mindset God wants us to have. And that's why in chapter 5, when Paul talks about the fruits of the Spirit in verse 22... In verse 23, and he says, against such there is no law. Why? Because this isn't about legalism. This isn't about acceptance before God. This isn't about a list. This is about a supernatural work of the Spirit in your heart just making it happen. And you want to hear from the Lord so you read His Word. You want to talk to God so you pray. You want to tell other people about Him because it's such exciting news so you witness And when given the opportunity, you do it. Lord, give us that mindset. Give us that perspective. And we'll be on fire for Him. The promise preceded the law. It's very important to understand that. And third thing, the purpose of the law was to point to Jesus. Because the natural question that comes up here, these Judaizers would ask. Maybe you're asking. Okay, 
if the penalty of the law was paid by Jesus and God knew that we could never fulfill the law and that we would be under the curse of the law, and then the promise preceded the law, with all due respect, what is the point? Why the law? Why did it come? What was the reason? And Paul gives us three purposes for the law here in verses 19 through 25. Three purposes for the law. The first purpose is found in verse 19, and that's to restrain sin. Look at verse 19. What purpose then does the law serve? It's a great question, right? What's the purpose? It was added because of transgressions. So the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been given by the law. The point there is this. That the law was given to restrain sin. See, if we don't know what is right and what is wrong, we'll just do whatever we want. And God knew that that would not be good. And so, He brought the law, He gave it to Moses there on the top of Mount Sinai to protect us. See, God says don't do this because He knows it's harmful to you. He doesn't want to rain on our parade. He doesn't want to be a party pooper. He's not just trying to, you know, make your life miserable. He says, don't do this because it's harmful. It's not bad because God says don't do it. God says don't do it because it's bad. It's hurtful. It's harmful. And God has set up these parameters for our protection to restrain sin in our life. Because he knew it would ruin us. He didn't set up the law so that we could relate to him by it. He didn't set it up so that we could fulfill it. He knew we would break it. I mean, isn't it sort of ironic that as soon as Moses got the law, what was happening? It was being broken right before his very eyes. I mean, that didn't happen by accident. It's almost like God was saying, here's the law, but you're going to break it. And what happened with the law? The original tablets. Moses broke them out of his frustration. Because the law would be broken. But it was set up for our protection. To restrain sin. A second purpose of the law, as Paul answers this question, well, what purpose does the law serve? It's found in verse 22. But the Scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. So a second purpose of the law is to reveal sin. The law showed us that we're a sinner. That's why Paul said, without the law, I would not have known that I was a covetous man. That I was a lawbreaker. See, the law made it very clear. And just like if we had no laws in our society, it would be crazy. People would be doing 120 miles an hour everywhere they went. I know I would be. If I didn't have to go a speed limit, I wouldn't. 
if there was no green light, red light, stop sign thing, I mean, hey, if I don't see anybody coming, you know, no right away. Maybe you're down on your luck, you know, and man, I, I need some money and you justify it in your mind and so you go rob a bank. I'll pay him back later, you know. That's the kind of stuff that would be going on. But because those things are illegal, because you can't just go and kill somebody when you get mad at them, you don't like them, 99% of society doesn't do it. But imagine what would happen in fits of rage when people get angry if it wasn't illegal. There would be no restraint. But these laws and the penalty of the law restrains sin, and it also shows you that you are a sinner. It makes it clear to you. And that's why Paul in Romans 3.23 said, all have sinned. How do we know that? Because of the law. It makes it very evident that you're a sinner. And then the third thing that the law does, the third purpose of the law, is found in verses 23 through 25, and that's that it reserves us for Jesus. It restrains sin, it reveals sin, and then it reserves us, in a sense it guards us and protects us for Jesus. What does that mean? Well, Paul uses two illustrations here. First, of a prison guard, and then of a schoolmaster. Look what he says. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law. Like a prison guard. What's a prison guard there for? Well, he keeps people in the jail, first of all, and he protects the prisoners from themselves. And that's what the law did. But just like a prison guard, he only guards people as long as they're in jail. As long as they're in the prison, then they're under His guardianship. They're under His watchful eye. But when that prisoner gets let out of jail, He doesn't follow them around. He doesn't go to their bedroom door. Okay, you know, you need to be in bed by 9 and you're up by 5 and, you know, stand by their door for the rest of their life. That would be crazy. Once you're out of jail, you're no longer under the authority of that guard. And so there's a a time period in which... The guard is relevant. But then once the guard, once the penalty for your sin has been met, then the guard is no longer relevant to you. You see where I'm going with this. And then he uses a second illustration. He says, therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Both of these illustrations point to the fact that the law was relevant for a time. But after that, it became irrelevant. It was something that we did not have to be under anymore. And the second illustration he gives is translated a tutor, which is also translated a schoolmaster in the King James. Neither one of those translations is very good. But it's about as good as we can get in our understanding of the word in what would resonate with us. 
We don't really have anything that would resonate with this word except maybe nanny. People had slaves back then. And when you had a child, you would put your child under the tutelage, under the guardianship of one of your slaves. And like a nanny, that slave would raise your child basically until the time of puberty. And then they would sort of be on their own. And so the tutor would protect, would guard, would train, would raise the child. But then when the child was of age, he would release the child. He didn't follow him around the rest of his life. The tutor was relevant for a time. But after that, he was no longer relevant. See, and we use this verse often to say the law points us to Christ, which isn't bad. That's what it does. But it's more than that. The law pointed us to Christ for a time. It protected us and guarded us. It was relevant for a time, just like this guard of a prison or this tutor of a child. Once you're freed from that, you're no longer under it. And you guys, we've been freed from the law by Christ. And why we think that we can now make the law relevant again is beyond me. And it was beyond Paul. He didn't understand. Why are you trying to relate to God this way? You're freed from that. It would be like a prisoner sitting in his jail cell, begging the guard to keep watch over him. It would be like a child begging after he becomes an adult to be under the authority of his parents. It's relevant for a time. But after that, it's silly. It's foolishness. And so how are you relating to God? Is it by the law or is it by grace? And we, I gave you the test earlier. Why are you doing the things you're doing for God? Is it to earn His favor? Is it to earn right standing with Him? Is it because you think that will make Him happy? Guys, when Jesus said it is finished, He meant it. The work of salvation is done. And now the things that we do for God are simply a response. We respond. He's the initiator. We respond. And it makes it so much more enjoyable to be doing things for the Lord when you're doing it that way. It's not a drudgery. It's not a burden. It's a privilege. It's a blessing. And so uh, Mark Roden will be up here and I will be up here uh, to pray with you guys. The worship team's going to come up and they're going to close us in, in song. And if you guys would like prayer, uh, you can come up during the song and we'll be available to pray for you. Or if uh, you want to wait till after, we'll be available after the service as well. Why don't, why don't we stand together, you guys? Father, we thank you for this time in your word. What a, what a great 